My name is Marshall Brown, the senior pastor here. I'll teach on the passage that uh, Nick just read. We will not be able to cover anywhere near all of that. I'm going to try to get to the heart of it, though, and I think, uh, I think we can. I think we will. Um, some of you, if you watch the video on Friday that comes out on Friday, you're wondering uh, if you, the, this sanctuary, literally pews were removed, and you're like, what is happening? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, it's just, well, it's going to be good. Hopefully, it'll be installed by next week. So, uh, anyway, there's going to be more light. I'll tell you, it's going to be more light. It's basically better lights. So, all right, let me pray for us. God, we come uh, to the passage that was just read that um, there's a lot of it we deeply resonate with, whether we are a follower of you or not. There's a lot of it that is uh, confusing to us, even to the one who teaches. And so, God, I pray not so much just for understanding of this passage, though I do pray for that, both for the ones who listen as well as for myself, uh, but I pray that we would live into what you would have for us, which is to say that we would apply Romans 7 for our good and for your glory. And it's for the same reasons we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was raised in Texas in the Sun Belt. I got a lot of sun, which means that as a grown man, I have to go to the dermatologist uh, pretty regularly to get uh, checked on, make sure that I don't have cancer. And so I was at the dermatologist this week, and they do this body scan, and what they do is they take a light, if you haven't done this, they take a light, uh, and I think it's an infrared light, and they literally scan your whole body. They take this light that exposes what is on you. And then if they find a darkness, a certain darkness that is on your skin, uh, as they did with my case, if you get up close, uh, it's not that I didn't shave well, it's that there was something removed from me this past week, nothing big. Uh, but if, they, if the light exposes a darkness, uh, then they remove it uh, so that, God willing, I might live. <laughs> uh, so that you might uh, live. A light that exposes darkness uh, unto, unto life. Well, if you've been with us, we're in a city called Amazing Grace. We're studying the book of Romans. And the first five chapters of Romans, Romans is a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, to the church at Rome. And the first five chapters are about how a person uh, is made right with God, how it, to use our parlance, is how a person is saved, Romans 1 through 5. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8, which we have been in since the beginning of November and will be until the end of the year, are about how you change, how you change, how Christians change. Uh, and I've said every week, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're uh, not sure exactly what you believe, this is actually a chance for you to overhear uh, what God talks to us about when he asks us to change, uh, to live a life that is pleasing to him. In the last couple of weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 says some amazing things. It's really foundational for understanding the Christian life and the dynamic of it. But it says things like, you are dead to sin. If you're in Christ, not dying to sin, dead to sin. It says you are alive to God. It says that you are a slave to righteousness. And it says that you are free from sin. And several of you have asked me, and I know that I feel this in myself, I, I'm not sure I exactly feel dead to sin. And if you were listening closely or read along with Nick, perhaps you feel more like Romans chapter 7. Okay, Romans 7 actually resonates more with our experience at its first reading. It helps us realize 
that if Paul can say things like this, we might not be frauds. We might still be Christians. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 7, for I do not, do you feel this? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody feel like that ever? Pretty much every day, right? So Romans 7 raises several important questions. It's a tightly knit chapter. It'd be very difficult to go through. Uh, it's, it's just a tightly knit chapter. But the number one question it raises is, it's in, in correspondence to chapter 6, is how can I be dead to sin, a slave to righteousness? How can that be true of me? And yet, can, how can I be, verse 14 of Romans 7, of the flesh sold under sin? How can both of these things be true? Uh, let me make two book recommendations. I don't do this often and then give you two images. Uh, the first book I would commend to you is The Enemy Within by Chris Lundegaard. Chris Lundegaard. Um, and then if you really want to, if I read this, I'll buy you some sort of present. If you read Indwelling Sin by John Owen, I will, I'll buy something nice for you, I promise. If you can prove to me that you've read Indwelling Sin, it is brilliant, it is tough sledding, it is really beautiful, though, in talking about Romans 6 and 7. Enemy Within, that's readable, Chris Lundegaard, Indwelling Sin, John Owen, not very readable, but very profound. Um, but then two images, those are two books. A few weeks ago, first image, um, I said that to be dead to sin is to have undergone a regime change, to have moved from the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of grace and light, to have been given a new citizenship, to have been given a new passport, and to have, most importantly, a new ruler. Which is to say, to be dead to sin is like being in Kherson. Am I saying this right? Kherson, Ukraine, okay? Kherson, which has been retaken by the Ukrainians from the Russians. Kherson has been liberated the rightful rulers are reinstalled. The government is working for the people's good. But there absolutely will be resistance, right? The Russians will continue to attack. The battle will rage. We are like Kherson, right? The rightful ruler is in place, God, if you're in Christ. And yet, and yet we are facing a guerrilla insurgency, a guerrilla war. That's the first image. Second image is... I hope it's close to home for all of us, actually. Because the Christian life that is depicted in Romans 6 and Romans 7 is like Alcoholics Anonymous. It is like AA. Have you ever been to an AA meeting? You should go. You walk in. Hi, my name is Marshall. And I am an alcoholic, right? Not I was an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I am not an addiction. I'm... Not an alcoholic, to the best of my knowledge. But, but you, it's not, I was an alcoholic, but I am an alcoholic. Your presence at the meeting says something is wrong. But your presence at the meeting also says, I am fighting this. I am in the struggle fighting. Incidentally, I have a friend, a pastor friend, who says that if he were to write a discipleship manual for Christians, he would pattern it after the 12 steps of AA. I think he's on to something, because what do you have in AA? Honesty, fellowship of the broken, acknowledge your helplessness, and acknowledge a higher power for a Christian that is God in Christ. Okay? So that's the Christian life as it's depicted in an AA meeting, okay? So what I want us to see, though, with those images in our mind from Romans 7, that there is a spotlight on us that we cannot escape. There is a darkness within us that we cannot control and that the path to healing begins with welcoming the spotlight and facing the darkness. But first, 
a spotlight on us that we cannot escape. In many ways, the book of Romans 7 is asking the question, what about the law of God? Is the law of God good or is the law of God bad? Now, that is a very big question. There's a lot of detail we could get into. But if you notice, if you were to go back and look, the word law or commandment occurs in each of the first 14 verses plus seven times the rest of the way. It just keeps on coming up. Law, commandment, law, commandment. And then first of all, uh, when Paul refers to the law, he is primarily referring to the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments primarily. But there's also this thing called the Levitical Code, which is all the kind of some of the weird stuff that you've read about in the Bible. Like, you know, it's referring to that, but more, broad, more broadly, but more specifically than summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, Paul's view of the law is very sophisticated, and it is beyond the scope of this sermon. But I want to say two things that the law does not do, and then two things more importantly in this passage that it does do. The first thing the law cannot do, the law cannot save you, okay? Uh, Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I hope this is something you hear every week in this church, in this pulpit, Uh, that Christianity is a religion of grace. There's nothing that you can do, there's no law you can keep to save yourself. You cannot keep the law, okay? law can't save you. But second of all, the law cannot bring about the type of life change that it commands, okay? To use the language we're talking about, the law cannot bring new life, okay? So those are some of the limits of the law. It cannot save, and it ultimately cannot help you change, But let's look at what the law does do. And it focuses as a spotlight. It exposes something. The first thing it reveals, I should say, is God himself. Look with me at verse 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law of God, particularly the Ten Commandments, they are an outworking, a manifestation of who God is. They are an outworking, right? They're like the scaffolding of who God is. They're not... And it's interesting, when Jesus becomes a man, excuse me, when God becomes a man, Jesus, Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law. And he comes to fulfill the law not to earn something so much, but because the law is who he is. The way Jesus acts is living out the law. He is holy and righteous and good. So the first thing the law reveals is who God is, his character. But the second thing, and more to the point of Romans 7, The law reveals, it exposes, it's like a spotlight on the darkness within us. Read with me verses 7 and 8 of Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now this is an interesting choice that the Apostle Paul makes. There are ten commandments, and the tenth commandment is you shall not covet. And this is the commandment that Paul seizes upon. And I think it's very intentional, because if you think about it, and I'll kind of rattle a couple of them off, at least in an external sense, kind of in a superficial sense, you can keep the first nine commandments. No idols, you know, nothing's in my closet. Uh, you know, don't cuss using God's name. I, I can restrain myself. No murder, check. No adultery, check. No stealing, check. I mean, externally, superficially, you can keep the first nine commandments. But no coveting? Ah, you're not supposed to covet? 
nobody's house or their car or their balance sheet or their vacation or their marriage or their children or how smart they are or the gifts that they have. I mean, come, nobody gets by that, right? Coveting gets us all. I mean, actually, if you read the law, right, you can't get by any of the commandments, but especially coveting. And once you read, you, once Paul read, you shall not covet, there is no rock you can hide under. It is a spotlight that exposes us. A light has shone that exposes. What Paul is saying is that the law that showed me my sin, it's a mirror. It's a mirror that talks to us and shows us our faults. I did not know I was coveting, he says, until I read, I sh- you shall not covet. Then he knew that he was coveting, that he had broken God's law. You see, what the law does is it exposes the veneer, the, superfici- the veneer of obedience, the superficiality of our obedience. It shows us what is already there and already broken. I told this story before, I believe, um, but it illustrates it well. I think my first year in seminary, seminary is grad school for preachers. Uh, so I was studying to be a pastor, and I cheated. I cheated in a class, okay? I, I didn't think it was a big cheat. That's what I told. I said, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, you know, it wasn't a huge cheat, but I did. I cheated, and I kind of knew it was wrong because it kind of lodged back in my head, but I thought it's not that big a deal. That, that requirement was actually just, it was too much. That professor was asking too much of us, and that, you know, I'm on the whole an honest guy. That's not who I really am. Three years later, three years later, I'm at the beginning of the semester, and, you know, every, most professors, I don't know, we've got quite a few professors in the room, but, you know, it's the first day of class, and they're doing, they're reading the law to you, you know, if you do this, this is what will happen, you know, if you cheat, you know, and three years later, this other professor, actually in a different city, is reading the law, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am a cheater, I cheated in that class three years ago, I was a cheater, Right? And I went back and confessed to the professor, the original professor. But it was the reading of the law that exposed. It was a spotlight on my conscience. It exposed me. This is one reason we have a confession of sin every week. Chris just led us through it a moment ago. Once a month, it's actually the Ten Commandments. Because the confession of sin is a spot, it's a chance for you to look at yourself honestly, try to be. We're not ultimately ever totally honest with ourselves. But to try to take that moment, that, that's why we have that moment of silence, to say what is really true about me, what is on the inside, to let the spotlight search us and know us. So first of all, Romans 7 teaches us there's a spotlight on us we cannot escape. It's the law. But what that spotlight shows us, secondly and more importantly, is there's a darkness in us that we cannot control. So the law points to and exposes the real problem. And the real problem is the sin or the darkness that is within us. Look with me at verse 13. But did that which is good, that's the law, did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was not the law that brought death. It was sin producing in death in me through what is good. And then verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who did it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, working definition of sin. A working definition of sin is putting anything in the place of God. So if it's some sort of pride or selfish ambition, that's putting yourself and your interest above God and his commands. Or maybe it's hedonism, doing things that feel good to you, uh, putting that over God. 
We can even use our good deeds. Martin Luther called this the white devil. The very good things we do because we want control in our life. We want order in our life. So we actually use our good deeds and we place those above God. When I was cheating, what I was doing, the cheating was wrong. But what was really wrong was I wanted to succeed to get a good grade more than I wanted to please God. Okay, do you see? Sin is anything we put in the place of God. But sin is also a dark power that deceives us, and it is beyond our ability to control. It's interesting to watch pop culture and kind of see where things are. I feel like right now we're kind of in a righteousness moment. All the shows on TV, uh, they're about superheroes and being righteous and strong. But about a decade ago, uh, there was this moment where all of the great shows were about sin and brokenness, okay? Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Dexter, a little bit before that, The Wire, and The Sopranos. Those are all about very broken people, right? And why were they so popular? They were well done, but I think all of those shows in different ways showed us that there was a darkness within all of us. Actually, Dexter Morgan, uh, the character De- Dexter, he actually talks about this. He said, the reason you like it, he actually, there's a monologue where he says this, the reason you resonate with me is because you resonate with yourself. It's, it's within you, right? There's a darkness within all of us that we resonate. In all of those shows, at some level, what they are suggesting, that there is a set of circumstances, there's a set of circumstances that would unleash a monster within all of us. That's what happened to all of those anti-heroes, right? It could be a financial crisis. It could be a health concern. It could be a colicky baby. It could be a rebellious child. It could be a difficult marriage. These circumstances that have the potential to unlock what is already on the inside, the monster within. You see, friends, there is an enemy within that aims to own you, to kill you. Verse 13, there is a sin that produces death. This is why I find the addiction language in the addiction community, AA, so helpful. Because our sin is like a dark passenger with us in the car saying, you need me now. And we feel divided, right? Who is the real me? What do I really want? Who is my true self? If you're like me, Romans 7 on the one hand is very affirming. Like, I feel this. I do what I don't want to do. That sense of inward division. But it's also a bit confusing. What do I do with this? And how do I read this in light of Romans 6? Dead to sin or under sin? Which which one is it? It makes me feel a little bit better. There's a lot of disagreement. Uh, These four of my heroes all kind of have a different take on Romans 7. John Stott, Tim Keller, N.T. Wright, and Martin Lloyd-Jones all read Romans 7 a little bit differently. But what is most important is what Romans 7 does for us. It shows us a path to life. We've seen there's a spotlight on us that we cannot escape and a darkness within us that we cannot control. But third and most importantly, the path to healing begins with welcoming the spotlight and facing the darkness. The path to healing begins with welcoming the spotlight and facing the darkness. Read with me again verse 13. Did that which is good to me, the law... Bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
What I want us to see is that I think that Romans 6 and 7 are taking us on a path, and it is a good path to life. The path here begins with the law of God. The law reveals, it exposes our sin. In fact, it even says here that it arouses our sin. This is controversial, right? It provokes our sin, right? It evokes our sin. And it shows that sin is shown to be exceedingly sinful. You see, the more, and the, and, but Paul keeps on going. There's a growing sense as Paul moves deeper and deeper into Romans 7 that he is out of control, It's like he's spiraling down and down. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. As the passage develops, there's this deepening understanding of wretchedness. And it's not just that he's at odds with God. He's at odds with himself. He's at odds with himself. You see, the solution is not as simple as switching sides or choosing the right because the war is with and within himself. And so are we. You feel this, right? Who am I? What do I really want in this moment? What do I really want? As the author says, the line between good and evil runs not through nation states. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And the further Paul goes in Romans 7, he feels bound up. He's coming to the end of himself. He almost feels like Paul is unraveling as a person to a place of utter helplessness, utter need. And then he gets to the bottom. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is desperate and he is at the point of despair. Where can I turn? I'm a wretched person. What can I I do. To illustrate this, I want to take you to the very first Christian sermon. I want to take you to the very first Christian sermon, Acts chapter 2. At this time, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven, and then he has sent his Holy Spirit down. We call that Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come down, and the Apostle Peter preaches the very first Christian sermon in the sense that it's Jesus has gone, the church has begun. In Acts chapter 2, if I were to tell you what that sermon is about, basically Peter, uh, he says that Jesus is the fulfillment to this group of Jews of all that the Jewish scriptures had promised. And after talking about how great Jesus is and how he's the fulfillment of all things, this is how Peter, Peter apparently never went to seminary and learned how to close a sermon, because this is how Peter ends his sermon. Let all the house, this is verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, this is the last sentence of his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Peter, he doesn't know how to end a sermon apparently, right? That's the last sentence, okay? And when the people heard this, it says, quote, they were cut to the heart. What? And they begged out. They called back the preacher. They called back to the preacher. What shall we do? (laughs) They're afraid out of their minds. They have realized that they have participated in murdering the Son of God. They have crucified him. You have crucified, he says. They're expecting wrath, judgment, condemnation. They feel wretched. But with a smile on his face, I have to imagine, Peter says, No, repent and be baptized because the promises are for you. Repent and be baptized. The promises are for you. You see, realizing that they had murdered Jesus does not condemn them. 
Realizing they had murdered Jesus is a catalyst that breaks open their heart in newness. Realizing that Jesus was condemned for them. Jesus is condemned for you. In our place condemned, he stood. And when the Apostle Paul gets to the bottom of that spiral, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What is the very next sentence? Verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you get to the bottom, he gets to the end of himself. He's unraveling a wretched man that I am. It's then that he can say, it's then that he can say, thanks be to God. You see, friends, when you welcome the spotlight, when you face your inner darkness, you can get to the point of being the wretched woman, the wretched man. You can get to the end of yourself. And you can finally and fully lift up your eyes and say, thanks be to God. I've got nothing left. I am at the bottom. And friends, the Christian life is getting there again and again and again and again. Let me say it semi-poetically and then theologically. If you are familiar, I hope you are, with Dante's Divine Comedy. It you know, he goes from hell all the way to heaven. I'm summarizing, if you're a literary scholar, forgive me, I'm going to abuse some things here. But as he spirals down, he goes through hell. He literally climbs, he, he goes down, 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 down to the, to the bottom of hell. It's frozen. And he literally climbs over the body of Satan. And as he's climbing over the body of Satan, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the light. He sees the stars. That is an image of Romans 7 and of the Christian life. Down, 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 down. Because once you get to the bottom, you're done with yourself. And you can lift your eyes and see the stars and begin the ascent to love. Well, let me say it theologically. Something you hear from me once a month, if not, maybe more. You are more wicked than you dared imagine. And more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. And that phrase, which I hope in the middle of the night you wake up, what does Marshall say all the time? That you'll, like, I could shake your foot at three in the morning, and that's what you'd say that I say. Because that is not just about getting right with God, being saved. That is a phrase for every day of your Christian life. That is Christian living. If you ever talk to me personally, you know I illustrate this with a wedge. You go, it's like a wedge like this. You go down the slope that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. So that you can go up the slope that you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. And friends, to live in Christ is to do that every day. Down the slope, up the slope, facing your wickedness. Allowing the law to expose the darkness so that you can know just how much God loves you. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day. We have to see that our sin, like Paul's, like that crowd at the first Christian sermon at Pentecost... We have to see that you and I, that we have set our teeth into the Son of God, right? We must gaze in horror, slack-jawed, realizing, oh, wretched man, that I, we condemned him to sin. And we realize that our sins have crucified Jesus. Our specific sins crucified Jesus. Once we realize that and know that he has given himself for us, The knots can begin to be untied. The spirit can get to work. You can get to the end of yourself so that you can finally say, Unite my heart, God, to fear your name. So how do we live? How do we go down this spiral 
of Romans 6 so that we can live into the life that we'll start seeing next week in Romans chapter 8. Three things real quickly. Little phrases. First of all, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Uh, Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Let the light. Okay, that's okay. It's good. There is no mature Christian life. There's no mature Christian life without a deepening consciousness of sin. You will not be made right until you're in heaven, okay? And so therefore, to live in Christ is to day by day recognize the deep consciousness of your sin. Secondly, so first, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. Second, I'll say it two different ways. Embrace the law of God. Another way of saying that, though, is to kiss the blade that cuts you. Kiss the blade that cuts you. It is worth reciting the Ten Commandments every day. Not so that you feel bad. Not so that you feel bad, but so that you, you know, the darkness is exposed so that you turn to the light. Kiss the blade that cuts you. Embrace the law of God. But then third and finally, approach the Lord's table. Approach the Lord's table. Because this meal that we're about to, this is the final word. And by the way, we're about to start coming forward in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited about that. More to come in a couple of weeks. If you're You've been here for more than the pandemic. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you'll see soon. But this word is the final word. Because what do you do? It says, this is my body given for you. And when by faith we eat the bread, what are we doing? By faith we are reminding ourselves that our sins crucified God, the Son of God. Because what do you do when you eat something? You kill it. You kill it. But what else happens when you eat something? It brings life to your mortal body. So cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. Embrace the lot of God and approach God's table, which reminds us of this truth. Wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's courage and his honesty and speaking of his own experience. We thank you for the way that his words help us to come to the end of ourselves, that we too can be unraveled so that you might rebuild us, unite us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.